you just to bring somebody up to speed here if you're visiting today or you maybe you've been out of touch for a couple of weeks. So we have been in the book of Romans and coming through the book of Romans uh, almost chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And when we get into Romans chapter 8, which is uh, probably one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament, if not the whole Bible, that really deals with, uh, you know, where we are at in our relationship with the Lord. Uh, I, I've been telling you all through this study how that the book of Romans is really the, the handbook of Christian doctrine for the church. It's the book that Paul wrote to the church that really details out what the church is to do, how it is to minister, and all the aspects that go along with that. If you want to understand how the church uh, lays itself out spiritually, you want to go to the book of Ephesians. But if you want to understand how the church is to operate, and the guidelines and the principles by which it's to govern itself, then it's the book of Romans. And I, we've been focusing on Bible principles. And I, I've been telling you how absolutely essential it is for a child of God to learn biblical principles. And what we started to do about three or four weeks ago is just take a, uh, you know, there's no way I can do it all. There's no way that we could cover them all. That was never really my intention. I told you that we would talk about different principles for different areas of your life. And we don't have time to go through all of them the way that we need to, but I've been showing you where they're at. And then we have used Thursday night in conjunction with that. And uh, many of you have brought up, last Thursday night our whole night was spent on talking about the two of the three major principles we talked about last week. And we have been dealing with dealing with people. Dealing with people in the aspect of if you're getting in ministry and you have to work with people or help people, whether it's through discipleship or working with them through issues in their life, or just people in general. We all have jobs, we all work, we all come into contact with the public every day, and uh, any kind of relationship that you build in any kind of work-related scenario, sooner or later, if people know that you're a Christian, uh, it's going to come up and God is going to use you in in that scenario and you need to understand the principles involved. And like I said, last week we finished up the principles on dealing with people. And today I want to move into the area of relationships. Probably, without a doubt, this is the single most important aspect of your Christian life because we all build relationships. And the principles to build relationships by or the principles to live by you know, uh, the area that we talked about last week with dealing with people, and then this one, they kind of go hand in hand, but I've kind of separated them out uh, that we could better understand them and isolate some great principles. And uh, so we want to talk about that today. And I want to, in the area of relationship, I, I want to talk about the probably the single most important aspect of your life. And I'm going to say a lot of things today that, that is water under the bridge for many of you. And uh, the thing that I want to be careful of today, so I'm going to accent my message all the way through here with kind of like uh, uh, some points to keep it all in, in reference to you. Because I, I'm going to talk about today the most important issue in your life if you're a child of God, and that simply is uh, the issue and the principles involved in finding life's partner. Finding a spouse. Finding someone that you spend the rest of your life with and, uh, and understanding the principles that are involved. You know, I, I think it would be safe to say, and I, I have dealt in, you know, scenarios uh, for 35, almost 40 years now, 
I, I don't know how many people over the years that I have married, pretty people that I've worked through, and I, I, I can't even, uh, sometimes the faces just get into a blur, you know, of how many people that over the years that I've worked with uh, in just about every scenario you can find in, in marriage, good and bad. I've seen it all. I've dealt with it all. I've, I've experienced it from the great relationships people have and really serve the Lord to the disasters that we find in so many people's lives today. And I, and I want to start, before I get into this, I, I want to say this. I don't care what scenario or situation you find yourself in this morning. First of all, this is not, in, if you're in a marriage scenario today or a situation or a relationship, um, I want you to know that, that wherever you're at, there's always something that God can do to make it better where you're at. There's never a time in your life, and I don't want to give the impression that if people have made mistakes in their marriage, if they have mistake, made mistakes in picking spouses that they married, and you find yourself in a scenario now that I talk about today, the last thing I want to do is add any more burden to the weight that you may already be carrying. But what I want to do is this, and I have a couple of goals I want to accomplish today. I want to begin to lay out the principles about relationship because I think they are vital today. At the same time, I want you to understand that whatever situation you find yourself in, maybe it's through no fault of your own. Maybe you're a person who got into a relationship before you got saved, and maybe you've gotten saved and your spouse has not. Maybe you're in a situation where you married somebody that, uh, uh, you know, you weren't plugged into the Word of God at that point, and when you got later on, it, it, it causes some problems and there's some scenario. There is an absolute million different scenarios that we all find ourselves in. And I want to preface everything I say today, and I'm going to punctuate my message throughout this whole thing by saying this. I don't care what situation you find yourself in. I don't care what mistakes you've made. I don't care what problems you're facing right now. I don't care if you've made the biggest mess out of your life that the world has ever seen. There will never be a time in your life that you cannot turn it around and be profitable in what God wants you to do. Never a time. And I want to preface that by saying this over and over today because in a message like this, you know, I know how people are. People come to the place where they take it personal. And I don't, I don't, I don't, because they have made some mistakes. Hey, there is never anybody on planet Earth that hasn't made some major mistakes in their life. And the person that tells you that they haven't is lying to you, and that's the first mistake they made. We all struggle. We are all in the same boat. There's nobody better than anybody else here. Very frankly, there's probably nobody more spiritual uh, than anybody else here. The real key between some of the people who struggle in relationships and struggle in their own relationship with God versus the ones that don't is simply one little word, the word principle. Using the Bible principles, we already saw what it does in your life, how it, how it clears up the fog in any given situation you've got to deal with, how it, how it simplifies the whole thing, how it takes the emotion out of it. And boy, when you start talking about relationships, let's be honest now, this is where your emotions get involved. And this is where many, many people, uh, because they don't have a relationship with God, 
They can't, they can't leave their emotions out of what they're going through, and they follow their emotions instead of biblical principles. And I, you know, I, 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 I want you to understand today that wherever you're at, whatever you're struggling with, there's always something you can do. There'll never be a time in your life when God will not take where you're at, turn it around, and use you uh, the way that He wants to use you. So I want you to understand that. But I would also say this. Dealing from my vast reservoir of experience in dealing with people, and, and my life is filled with people. Uh, my life is filled from, from Monday to, to, to Sunday of people coming over and sitting down, and many times they're not people that are connected with this church. Many times there are people that come in that, uh, that you don't even know, and somebody will send them to me, and I try to help them wherever I can and work through them. But I've come to this conclusion. I think this is probably a safe statement this morning in light of my experience anyhow. Maybe you don't see it this way, but, but uh, for based on where I've been and who I've dealt with down through the years, I think it's probably, if, if, I, was to, if I was to make one statement, uh, it would be this statement. A number of years ago, I got asked to sit in on a forum. And it was a forum of pastors that, uh, uh, that were dealing with the issue because, you know, if you don't know this already, divorce and trouble and marriage and problems, it, it is not relegated to the unsaved world. It is what has destroyed Christianity. The devil had a very clear plan. And you see this plan in the Old Testament. The devil knew when he wanted to destroy the plan of God and the nation of Israel uh, accomplishing that plan. You know, back in the Old Testament, it's set up in a theocracy, so to speak. They had a literal king, and it was a king that reigned over a nation, but it was in a spiritual sense. And the devil wanted to destroy that in your life and my life, just like the temple back there was literal. In today in Christianity, your body's the temple and it's spiritual. And there should be a king reigning over you in your life, but it's not King David, it's not King Solomon, it's not King Saul, it's not King, uh, one of those kings back there. It ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ being king of your life, see? I mean, it's all similar. But what the devil did and how he destroyed the nation of Israel is the first thing he went after is he went after the priesthood. And when he destroyed the priesthood and the priesthood became corrupt, the nation of Israel had nothing to base itself on. And from that corruption, the next corruption sealed the nation of Israel's fate, and it was the breakdown of the families. Did you ever notice in the Old Testament how stringent they are with their children? I mean, if you want a child training program, go back to the Old Testament. You had a rebellious son in the Old Testament, and you were a mom and a dad, and you went to the son and you said, son, take the trash out. The kid said, I ain't taking it out today. And you said, well, it needs to go out today because the trash guys are coming this afternoon. Well, I ain't doing it. Now, son, you know, we're all supposed to work together as a team here in the family. Please take it out. And he says, I ain't taking it out, and you can't make me take it out. Well, what they did back in the Old Testament is when they had that particular problem, they took it to the elders. The elders were a group of people within the nation of Israel that kind of, well, you know, not in the same sense, but they act like a, uh, they kept everything within confines, that nothing got out of control. They're like a, a you know, a, I can't even think of anything in the New Testament. I was going to say like pastor, but that's not true either. But they're a group of people who basically enforced the law and made sure everything was done right. So they brought the boy into the, into the elders. And the elders of the, would say to him, what's the problem? And Dad said, well, I got a rebellious child here, and we got to do something with him because uh, he's rebellious. 
And of course, they said, well, what's the problem? And, you know, and I'm oversimplifying it. He wouldn't take the trash out. And, and he said, the elder said, now you need to do that because you've got to help your mom and dad. And then he gets really irate with the elder. In other words, his rebellion is, is widespread. And he just simply tells everybody involved, I ain't doing it. You know what the next step was? It wasn't getting him Dr. Spock's book on how to do right and be good. It wasn't rewarding him some plague. You know what the next step was in the Old Testament? Now, this sounds harsh, but the next step was take him out, dig a hole, put him in the hole, and all the elders get around with big old rocks. First rock concert in the Bible started right there. See? And they killed the kid. Now, that seems harsh. But you know why that the law was so tight and stringent on that particular scenario in rebellion? Because the Bible says that the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And God knew that if Israel was never going to accomplish what it needed to accomplish, the thing that was going to destroy it was the devil was going to attack first the priesthood, which he did. Once the priesthood got attacked, the next unit that broke down was the family structure. And that is absolutely why God has such stringent rules between rebellious children in the Old Testament because God knew that if the family unit fractured and broke down within the Old Testament structure of the nation of Israel, that the whole thing would break down. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what happened. That's why Christian families today are fractured. That's why Christian marriages today, for the most part, are just... Uh, and, you know, I'm leading up to this statement. I think that it would be safe to say today, looking around Christianity, knowing what we know about the Bible or what we should know about the Bible, I think it would be a pretty safe statement to say that probably 99.999% of all the marriages today, Christian marriages, at their inception, at the altar, when they get married, probably start out wrong. I think that marriage is something today that most of God's people have no idea about from a Bible standpoint. I think the definition of marriage in the Bible has been lost just like the definition of the rapture, the definition of inspiration, or the definition of worship, or the definition of holiness. I think the concept that Scott's teaching on Sunday morning, he's teach, or Saturday morning, he's teaching the, the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. Barb taught it to the ladies a while back. You know why we do that? We do that because the average Christian today, if you walked up to them and said, are you saved? I am. Are you born again? Yes, I am. Have there been a time in your life that you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior? Yes, I have. Good. What were the seven things that instantaneously inside your body changed the instant you got saved? They couldn't tell you. They couldn't tell you. And yet your salvation is based and your walk with God is based on you understanding that. You know why so many people believe you can lose your salvation today? You know why so many of God's people walk around in the fog that they can lose their salvation? Let me tell you why. They think they can lose it because they don't know how they got it. I guarantee you, if you know those seven things that changed about you the day you got saved, you wouldn't waste 15 seconds on worrying about losing your salvation. The reason why you worry about losing it is because you don't know how you got it from the Bible. You got a system of terms. You've been born again, washed in the blood. Okay? You know all the terms, but you don't know what really transpired in your life that really makes you saved. Well, marriage is the same way. And what we've got today, what we got today is some bad ideas about what marriage is and finding life's partner. There's a rule that I found to be so true. 
And it's not just true of marriage, but it works in marriage, but it's true just about everything. And it's just a basic, simple little rule. And it's, I, I'm sure it's in the Bible someplace. I just never, I've just never found it. I mean, it's, it's, you find it in a general sense. But there's a verse in there someplace. But, I, but it just, it's so simple. And it's simply this. If something starts wrong, it usually ends wrong. Now, that's just the way it is. And if people don't understand what marriage is at the beginning, and they enter into something that they call marriage when they don't even understand how God defined marriage and what they're getting into, I guarantee you what starts wrong usually ends wrong. And uh, but then I, I, I throw in my disclaimer here that anytime you want to wake up and you want to make your marriage, even if you didn't know what it was when you got into it, anytime you want to turn the corner and make it what it is now and go on, it works. It works. You add to that the people that get saved after their marriage, and half the family's lost, half the family's saved, a mom and a dad, and, and it gets in through all those struggles, and it's easy to see why the divorce rate in Christianity is absolutely astronomical today. And uh, you know what? It, it, and, and, and a lot of people, you know, you'll, you'll see a couple, they get married, and for two or three years, everything looks fine. And they come to the point where, you know, two or three years down the line, they're fine. And then five or six years later into that thing, they're divorced. It's a disaster. And people look at that and they're saying, they were saved. They went to church. They, and, see, I'm not talking about the world here. I'm talking about God's people, saved people. They get married for two or three years, it's fine, they get along great, and then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, five or six, seven, eight years down the line, they're divorced, it's a mess, everything is upside down, and everybody looks at that and says, wow, how did that happen? You know what it does? It scares some people. I've had some people look at circumstances like that or other similar circumstances, and it really shakes them a little bit. Because they thought the Bible was insulated you against that. They thought going to church was the, was, the, was the thing that you could do that preserves you from that. And the reality is going to church doesn't fix anything. The reality is, is that you've got to, you, if it starts wrong, good chance it's going to end wrong. Stop and look at it this way. Say down the line someplace, God forbid. But God forbid, someplace down the line, you know, you go to the doctor and, or somebody you know goes to the doctor and, uh, you know, for the last two or three years, everything was fine. They were, they were getting along in life, full of life, played softball, played basketball, did everything, played golf, did everything that everybody else did. I mean, they were the absolute picture of health. And then one day they go into the doctor and the doctor says, man, you got cancer. Man, you got this, or you got that. Two years before you have any outward signs. Two or three years before you have any symptoms. Two years before, before you, you feel any change, or you lose, your, you lose your strength, or you lose your go get them, or you lose this, or you lose that. Everything's fine, but slowly inside. It starts with a, just a little cell that, that, that mutates itself. A little cell that begins to kill other cells and affect other cells. And slowly, without notice, it grows into a great disease. That by the time you find it, 
that it spread through your body and the doctor says, you got six months to live. That's what happened with marriages. When they start wrong in relationships, they usually end wrong. And it's no guarantee of how much you are in love the day you get married. It's no guarantee how much you're in love for the first three or four years you're in marriage. Because just like somebody out there running 10 miles a day and playing all kinds of the sports, and while he's doing all that, down inside something is terribly wrong. And he doesn't feel it, so we don't feel it, so we don't think there's anything wrong. Till it's too late. Just as every body, buddy's body in here <laughs> physically should have a checkup with a doctor every year, every marriage should have a medical checkup. I, 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 I listen to the, you know, when I'm driving back and forth, I listen to the radio, and there's this, there's this, uh, there's this doctor's group that only does men. I can't think of them right now, but they, they, their, their line is this. The greatest killer of men is not cancer, the greatest killer of men is not disease, but the greatest killer of men is procrastination. And yet, my friend, that's the greatest killer of marriages. I started to tell you, I was in a, I was in a little symposium here a while back, and they were talking about what, uh, what, what, what the issues were. And somebody asked the question out of the audience, a lady, and she says, what do you, I'd like to ask each of you a question. What do you believe is the real cause of divorce in Christian life today? You know, and everybody had their pat answer. You know, everybody, it went down the room, you know, around the corner, you know, and everybody up there gave their uh, professional opinion on it. And it, I was the last guy. And she said to me, she says, Pastor, I'd like to ask you, what do you think is the number one cause of divorce? And I looked at her and I said, it's real easy. The number one cause of divorce is marriage. <laughs> and the crowd did exactly what you did. They laughed. Till I explained it. And I said, I appreciate everybody's opinion here this morning, but the bottom line is this. The greatest cause of divorce is marriage. Because when you get into something that God designed and ordained, and you try to run it another way than God designed it, it's going to end in disaster. When it starts wrong, it ends wrong. I use the example with, with, with people that come over, and you all have heard this. But I like to tell it, and you know what, and there's people here that haven't heard it, but this is how I, I liken it all and lay it all out. Let's say I come home tomorrow, but Barb says the, the, uh, um, the, the washing machine's not working. I pick that because we always have, for whatever reason, demon-possessed washing machines that always go out. And I come home, and the washing machine is just absolutely on the blink. And she says, so I'm gonna, I just want to let you know I'm going to call the repair guy. And I say, well, don't do that just yet, because he's going to cost us $75 just to come out and look at it. And it may be something that's just as simple as hitting a reset button, or maybe this, just, where's the owner's manual? I mean, there, you know how they give you an owner's manual, and the back of the owner's manual is all the things that you troubleshoot when it won't come on, see? Now, I'm, my house is no different than your house because your smiles are betraying you uh, already. And you know that in your kitchen or in your house somewhere, there is a drawer that you have every owner's manual of everything you ever bought. You have stuff that burned up, blew up, threw away nine years ago. You still have the owner's manual just in case, you know, your neighbor needs one. I know how it works, you see. 
So I go into the kitchen and I open the drawer and I start piling them out. There's the one for the dishwasher, there's one for the microwave, there's one for the radio, there's one for this, there's one for that, there's one for the cordless phones, there's one for this, there's one for that. And I get a stack of them that high and for the life of me, I cannot find the owner's manual that tells me how to fix the washing machine. Now I'm in a dilemma, but oh, not me. Because I say to my wife, well, no problem. Hand me the, hand me the, Hand me the book from the cordless phone. Now, what are the chances of fixing what's wrong with the washing machine by the handbook that shows me how to fix the cordless phone when it doesn't work? Pretty ridiculous, isn't it? But that simple little illustration is so absolutely paramount in what we're talking about this morning. Because God designed marriage. I know we get the idea that marriage is a, a thing of civilization, you know. Primeval man, when he come out of the cave and, and put away the club from walking over to the gal that he really wanted and beat her on the head and drug her by the hair, you know, and brought her out of the, into his cave and says, Ungamba, mm, I got me a woman, you know. We think that when man's civilized and he doesn't come out of the cave anymore, you know, and now he walks upright and, uh, and uh, he, you know, and so now that... As, as society civilized and they got to the place where people said, you know what, we should have, a, we should have something called marriage. <coughs> marriage was never designed by the world. Marriage was designed by God. And I got some other news for you. God never intended marriage to be for anybody who's not saved. But you know what happens? We live in a world where marriage, I mean, just go on your Sunday paper and look at all the big pictures of all the people, weddings that are planned down through downtime. And we're coming into that time of year, May and June. Look out. The real wedding I'm looking for in May and June may come this year, as a matter of fact. That's one I really want to go to. But you look at that and you think to yourself, you know what? We, because of that, we think that the marriage is something that the world designed. The world didn't design it. The first marriage is found in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. The first marriage is found right there in the Bible, and God never intended marriage to be anything but for two people that are in Christ. And, you know, the world can do it, and the world can, can pretend at it, and all of those things, but in reality, when it comes down to the biblical principles, you know what, marriage is something that God designed. And trying to run what God designed by another set of standards that God never intended it to run by is why marriage is the number one cause of divorce. Young people get into marriage not following the biblical principles, and when they get into something that God designed and try to run another way, what starts wrong will end wrong. Now, I'm putting in my disclaimer again. But any time in the process of that, you say, well, I married a, I married a, I married, I, I married, I married a woman and I shouldn't have never married her. She is the ugliest woman. Well, I can't help anything about being make her ugly, but I can't help you work your marriage. She says, well, I married this guy and he's the biggest bozo in the world. Well, I don't know what. Clown suits are pretty cheap today. I don't know what we can do about that. But I can fix your marriage. Because God doesn't care what, what, where you're at with it. The key is, do you want to do what you have to do to make it work? And doing that means that you get back to a biblical marriage. You get back to a biblical relationship. In other words, you've learned the principles of dealing with each other and understanding how marriage works. Now, we're going to start with, we're going to start with uh, a broad thing here, and then we're going to kind of work our way down through here, and we're going to look at some of these things. But uh, let's, uh, 
let's, uh, let's, let's look at it here as we go down through here. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we love you. We thank you today. And we pray that you'll bless this time as we look at it today and talk about these great principles. We love you, Father. And we thank you for all that you do for us now. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first thing I already gave you was that marriage is not man's idea. It was God's idea. It was never intended for unsaved people. When I look at a job of a pastor, when I look at the job of you who work with me in various ministries with people, I think of one word. It's the word we all use today, and you find it in government, you find it in, in society, you find it in, uh, in all of the things that go on in the world. It's the word proactive. Proactive means you, you, uh, you, uh, you get ahead of something before you have a problem. I, I don't think much of the word proactive, but I use it because you all understand it. I like principles. Back in the book of Genesis, there's a great principle that illustrates proactive. You don't have to use the word, but I'm going to use the word today in and out our times because you'll, you'll know what it is and it'll just help you. But I like biblical principles. The biblical principle in the Bible found in Genesis is, is don't wait till you run out of water before you start digging your well. See? Don't wait till you're out of water before you start digging the well. Don't wait till you're out of water before you dig the well. And don't wait till you get married to start to learn the biblical principles. That's called proactive. And my job as a pastor is to, is to, is to uh, do preventative maintenance. Get you young people to the point, get people to the point, no matter what situation they're in. Now, the next thing is you need to understand the concept of a help meet versus a help mate. In Genesis chapter 2, when God brought uh, Adam a woman, he didn't, bring her a help, he didn't bring him a help mate. He brought her a help meet, M-E-E-T. Animals have mates because that's their sole purpose in life is, is uh, uh, big cows produce little cows. They grow up the big cows and they produce big little cows and, that's, and, and sheep and lambs and everybody does the same thing. Animals have mates. You see, the first thing God had in his mind when he comes to produce a marriage was not sex. It was not pre-procreation, though that's very important or we wouldn't have anybody around to talk to this morning. But that wasn't the goal in his life, in his mind. That's not what he was trying to accomplish. That's why he didn't call her. I mean, he says, all the other animals, all the animals that God created, they had mates, somebody to mate with. But he says, Adam doesn't have one, so I'm going to create for him a help meet. Not a help mate. Because God had a plan for Adam. You see, he didn't give Adam a wife just so Adam could have little Adams running around all over the place. I guess if their kids really got out of control, that was really an Adam bomb, wasn't it? <laughs> Never mind. <clears throat> that's, that's, that's not the goal. That's not his purpose. Oh, I know he said be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, but that was part of a bigger scheme of things. God had something that he wanted Adam to accomplish. He had something he wanted Adam to do. And he gave Adam a help meet. That woman was a help meet to help meet the needs that Adam had to get done what God called him to do and God put him together. And that's why in Ephesians, when it talks about marriage, he runs it right back to the first marriage in the Bible, which is Adam and Eve. And when you get married, you're not looking for a mate. You see, you don't understand the concept. You're not looking for a mate. You're not looking for a mate. You're looking for a help meet. If you're saved, God has a plan for you. He has something that he wants you to accomplish. And the only way you're going to accomplish it is to get the right help meet. You get a help mate, what starts wrong usually ends wrong. 
So you see how this thing works? Somebody gets into marriage. One, they don't understand what marriage is in the Bible. Two, they don't understand it's about a helpmate, so they're looking for a helpmate. They have no concept that God has a plan for them, something He wants them to do. And God gave you a, a partner to help meet that demand that you get the job done for God. Can you see how the devil gets in those details? Do you have a better appreciation now what marriage is? Marriage is something that God wants you to enter into a union to that you can do the work for Him. And when somebody tries to get into a marriage without the principles involved by the manual that God gave, I would have a better chance fixing my washing machine with a handbook for my cordless phone. Because it just won't work. God had a plan for Adam. God had a plan for Adam. And of course, the devil got into details and destroyed that plan. God has a plan for every man and every woman, if you're saved, that's in this room this morning. I don't care if you got saved when you're, I don't care if you're 80 and you got saved when you're 60. God still has something He wants you to do. I don't care if you got divorced, you got remarried, you got upside down, I don't care. It, it, wherever you're at, wherever you're at right now, this is my fourth disclaimer, wherever you're at, God will take you and use you no matter what your circumstances are. But God has a plan for you. Now, understanding what we just talked about in these great principles brings up two absolutely imperative issues that we must consider and that you are faced with. And it underscores the absolute necessity for caution and the use of principles in choosing a spouse or entering into a relationship that would, down the line, maybe lead to, to marriage. And now to the women. Here's your principle. The man that you marry, the man that you enter into marriage with will either make you or break you at the judgment seat of Christ. He will either be the one that cascades you into the glory of everything that God had for you to get, or He will be the one that will rip from you and take from you every reward that God had for you because you did not understand the concept of a helpmeet versus a helpmate. To the men, I say this. Here's your principle. The woman you marry will make or break you at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll either get a one that will be there and, and hold, help you and support you and to be in everything that you do and to be your right arm, or you'll get a jo wife like Job had. In the face of adversity, she'll be used to the devil and she'll look at you in your toughest time. Instead of being the comfort and support, she'll give you the best advice she can. Curse God and die. Your spouse, who you marry, who you link up with, you see, this brings up another problem that we have. Another misconception, if you will. We as God's people, saved and on our way to heaven. We have not yet realized that the number one thing we are to look out for, and the number one doctrine for you and for me, and the number one principle that everything in my life should go back to, is the judgment seat of Christ. The day, I think some of you think it's a fairy tale. I think some of you think that it isn't going to happen. I think some of you think that it's just some old story stuck away in the Bible. There will be a day 
when you stand before God and you realize how little, piddly, small, minuscule your life on planet earth was. You realize that you were just a drop of sand in God's hourglass that fell through in time through that glass that when the last sand went through, time was over and now what you thought was really life, what you thought was really living, what you thought was really everything, what you cheated for and fought for and worked for and vested your whole life in, now you realize how foolish and fragile it really was. Now you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ realizing God had a plan for you. He had something He wanted you to do. He had something that He wanted you to accomplish. And because, for whatever reason, you did not, would not, could not follow the principles. You stand there when everybody's saying, wow, the end of the world. No, it's the beginning of what God's going to do. You stand there without anything. Let me tell you something. I've seen so many marriages over the years that when the spouse goes down, you go down. I've seen so many relationships where, whether it's the husband or the wife, when the spouse goes down spiritually, the whole thing goes to pot. I've seen wives that married husbands, and when the husband checked out and decided he wasn't going to do what's right anymore, she's caught. What does she do? What does she do? She's got kids now. She's got this. She's got that. She has no financial responsibility or to take care of herself. What is she going to do? I've seen the opposite, where a guy does what's right and the woman checks out. What does he do? What does he do? Hey, let me just say this. We don't have time to get into this this morning, but there's always something you can do. I don't care what scenario. We're going to get to some of it this morning. We're going to get to some of it this morning. There's always something you can do. Always something you can do. Most kids get married. They never look on the inside. The great principle, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. We are so in this world today geared by what we see. We are so geared by our sexual orientation and our motivation. We are so geared by, by the physical things that we see. We don't even give a second thought of what really counts in a relationship. Most kids that get married today have no idea of God, have no idea of marriage. They have no idea of ministry in marriage. They don't have no idea of the balance it requires. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, they get married and you know what happens to them? They get too married. Ha ha. You ever notice that thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? That is one of the hardest things to understand and break down. How can two people get too married? You know what Paul says? I paraphrase, here's what he said. He says, and those of you that have wives, as though you have none. Now, isn't that a contradiction of terms? Ephesians says, when you get married, you're supposed to husband love your wife as they own, love that Christ loved the church. And then Paul says, if you got a wife, act like you don't have one. Well, that'll work in hunting season, won't it? <clears throat> that'll work when you want to do something you want to do. How 
in the world can you get two married? And you know what the tragedy is? If you're sitting here this morning and you don't understand that, you probably already violated it. Now I want to talk to you about one of the greatest passages in the Bible. I'm just preaching the principles. The Bible says, He that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. You probably ain't going to like everything I say this morning, but you know what? I don't know what to tell you. If you want a mealy mouth, mashed faced pastor, you better go to, almost said first, almost said first Baptist of Raytown. Boy, I'm glad I didn't say that. <laughs> That'd have been tough. How to find this, I'm just kidding, no personal, I'm just, just kidding. But most of you came from there, so never mind. Let's start over again. All right, we're going to open your Bibles today, and we're going to get into the Bible here. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump right into the middle of my message, because I just made a fool out of myself, and I don't want to go back and explain. Anyway, here we go. This is called the Isaac and the Rebecca principle, found in Genesis chapter 24. You might know that God would pick a chapter. And in this chapter, in the whole chapter, the whole, I mean, I think there's 66 verses in this chapter. There's 66 verses in it. You know why? Because there's 66 books in your Bible, that's why. Genesis chapter 24. You don't have to turn to it because I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell you about it. Read it on your own time, not mine. <clears throat> now, you know what you have in this story? As all stories in the Old Testament, they illustrate great principles. Let me give you the cast of characters. First of all, we've got a man named Abraham. Abraham's going to represent God the Father for us. Then you have a man by the name of Isaac. That's Abraham's son. He's going to represent Christ for us. Then you have a woman in here. Her name is Rebecca. And Rebecca is going to represent the Gentile bride that, uh, uh, that Christ is going to get someday. And then you have a man here, and we talked about him a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about stewardship. You have a man by the name of Eleazar. Eleazar represents for us the Holy Spirit of God. You know what you have in this passage? What you have in this passage is a picture of God the Father wanting a Gentile bride for his son, me and you, and then sending the Holy Spirit of God, Eleazar, out in the field, the world, to find a bride for his son, Isaac. And what you have here is a picture of what God looks for when he, when he, when he came after you, he, every detail, everything that you ever wanted to know of what God thought and was looking for when He found you and touched you on the shoulder and asked you that now famous question in Genesis chapter 24 when the Holy Spirit of God looked in Rebecca's face and talk, told him about the, the, the master's son and what a great guy he was and then the Holy Spirit of God looks right into, her, right into her face just like the Holy Spirit of God one day looked right into your soul. And you know what He asked her? Wilt thou go with this man? That's a picture of the day you got saved. She had to leave her family. She had to leave her servants. She had to leave everything. And she said in her heart, I will go with this man. And of course, that's the beautiful picture of the day you got saved. <clears throat> Bubba sings the song. One of you just got it off the thing here, off the internet. That uh, camel train song. Oh, get ready, the evening shadows fall. Can't you hear Eliezer call? There's going to be a wedding. My joy will soon be full in the evening when the camel train comes in. That song's based out of Genesis chapter 24. It's a picture of the bride of Christ. Now, at the same time, here's what you got inspirationally. This is the chapter, ladies and gentlemen, for you <coughs> to find a spouse. Everything in here is detailed out. 
Because the same things, <coughs> the same things that God looks for uh, in a person that when they get saved ought to be the same things that you look for in a spouse. You know why? Because the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and the wife, she that she reverence under her Lord. Uh, it's, it's all a picture of the same thing. So in this great chapter, <coughs> in this great chapter, <coughs> you have everything you need that you, you follow the principles. And I don't have time to go through all of the principles today, but I'm going to show you the main principle that it's built around, <coughs> and then we're going to work back into it. Now, eHarmony.com, if you get on that, they have 28, no, 28 dimensions of compatibility. Does anybody want to be honest enough <coughs> to say this morning that you ever surfed the eWDOM? Anybody ever done it? I mean, it, we're, we're not against you. I think it's neat. Anybody? Okay. <coughs> I mean, that, I wouldn't say. I, I mean, I'm just saying, I, you know, I, it's okay. I just thought, anybody here? Well, <coughs> all right. Genesis chapter 24 has 19 biblical principles to look for, what I call dimensions of compatibility. Except these are infallible. These are principles. Now, they work for a guy looking for a wife. They look for a wife looking for a guy. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And, and let me say this. As a child of God, as a child of God, God wants you to have the very best. God doesn't want to shortcut you any way, shape, or form. God wants you to have the very best. He wants to give you every tool. He wants to give you everything in your life to make you and help you get everything that God has for you and you can accomplish everything in His plan. He wants you to get everything at the judgment seat of Christ you got coming to you. And all your life, He puts things, principles, people in your world to help you accomplish that. All of our lives, the devil puts people, things, and people in our lives to take that from us. See? Just that simple. And as a young lady this morning, let me say this to you. As a young lady this morning, you have an absolute right to demand in the spouse that you, you find everything that you think you should have in Christ Jesus. You have that absolute right. I'm telling you right now, do not settle for second best. Find the man that will be to you what Christ is to the church. Find the man that will, will do everything that he's supposed to do. Find the man that will be your spiritual, spiritual leader. You don't have to drag him around by, the, by a collar being his spiritual leader. You have a right to that and should demand that simply because for no other reason your judgment seat of Christ depends on it. Now as a young man. You have an absolute right to demand a woman in your life. That is everything that a helpmeet should be. That is everything that will be there and accomplish in your life and help you be, uh, get what God wants you to do in your life. Every right for that. Do not set, settle for second best. Don't fall in love. Americans are famous for falling in love and then five minutes later falling out of love. American, American Christianity is built on the touchy-feely things of the world. You don't love God because you know God this morning. I could give you this Bible and ask you to show me the seven things that changed the day you got saved. You don't even know what they are. I could ask you a, a, a million questions about your relationship with Christ. I could ask you to split out the book of Song of Solomon, the most intimate book in the Bible that lays out what you should feel toward Him and how He feels toward you, and you couldn't do it. You have a right in everything in your life. You don't fall in love. 
you learn to love. You learn to love because you see not on the outward, you see on the inside. You see the biblical principles in a person's life, male and female. That's what you love. You don't, you don't fall in love with a body. You don't fall in love with a face. You don't fall in love. You fall in love with what's on the inside. But Oh, that's so foreign today, isn't it? God wants the best for you. But we get in a hurry or we rationalize or we justify what we want then we get a bad deal. We wind up in a situation that two or three years down the line, it didn't work out. Follow the principles, ladies and gentlemen. Your millennial inheritance is based on it. Now, the greatest single principle out of Genesis chapter 24, and I think personally it's the greatest protection you have as a single, whether you're male or female, I don't really care. I think it's the greatest single thing that you have that protects you. And it's the thing that it is taught all the way through here. And it's the fact that if I could give you any biblical principle, if you would come to me and you'd say, I'm looking for a spouse, male or female, what is the number one principle that I should look for uh, that I don't mess it up? Here's what I would tell you. Don't ever marry somebody that's not involved in ministry. Never. Never. Don't ever even consider marrying somebody that's not involved in ministry. Now, in case you ain't figured out why, because the Bible says that once you get married, he needs to minister to you. And now here's another great principle. If they don't do it before you get married, they're not going to do it after you get married. Now, my, my fifth disclaimer. Well, obviously some of you got into marriage before you heard what I just said this morning. Well, right afterward, John, read where you at. You set up a table back here. We're going to have a divorce proceeding. We're going to run you all through it. And then we're going to bring you back up here, and I'm going to remarry you now that you know it. Is that how we're going to do it? Come on. John's eyes lit up, man. He thought, he thought. <laughs> we can do a great bit of John. I run him out, you run him back. We can do that. No. The bottom line is this. Wherever you're at, start doing what's right. You can turn it around. There's no reason for you not to turn it around. No reason whatsoever. I would suggest to you, don't ever marry anybody that's not involved in ministry. Don't even consider it. Because marriage is the, marriage is the finalization of your ministry. Uh, he has to minister to you. I mean, I don't know if you know it or not, whether you're male or you're female, you have spiritual needs, you have emotional needs, and you have physical needs. And those are the same three needs you have in ministry. Sitting here this morning, we all have the same deal. We all have physical needs, we all have emotional needs, and we all have spiritual needs. You work with people, it's nothing more than one of those three or combinations of those three that have went sideways in their lives. That's all it is. Their emotional needs are overwhelming, their physical needs are overwhelming, and their spiritual needs are lacking. You want to hit all eight cylinders? You want to be pumping and doing something for God? Get those three things in your world. Well, ladies, let me just tell you something. Your husband hitting on those three cylinders, doing those things in his life, depends on where he's at in ministry. And don't kid yourself that he won't do it in ministry, but he'll do it with me. Don't kid yourself that, it, that you can work it out in time. The very basic fundamentals of ministry that everybody has in everybody's life are the three basic things you have in ministry. And ladies, your relationship with God, what you get from God, your spiritual relationship with God, all depends on the guy you marry. 
I mean, I can stand up here and preach and give you everything in the world, and I can lay things out, but at the end of the day, the bottom line, the Bible says it's the husband who has to be the spiritual leader to the wife. Now, I'm not saying, if you're dating somebody this morning, please don't look over at them and say, sorry, you're not cutting it yet, you're done. I'm not telling you to do that. See why you got to be careful with this? I mean, when you start preaching something like this, you got to cover, you got to cross every T and dot every I, or somebody's going to go out of here and say, well, I'm done with you. And that's not my purpose this morning. But I'm telling you this. I'm giving you the principles. If you've been in a relationship for two or three years, and either the male or the female is not following through and growing spiritually, and they're still using the same old uh, procrastination concept that they're, they're, oh, I'm not ready to do this yet. I'm not. When are you going to be ready to do it? After you're married? I don't think so. You, need, you know why I say this is so important? You know why I say don't marry somebody that is not involved in ministry? I know some of you just thought that I just said that because I don't like you. Well, you're right. I don't like you, but that's not why I said it. You know why I said it? Do you know why I said it? Going back to the chapter. Going back to the principle. You know why I said it? Because when Eleazar found a bride for Isaac, guess where he found her? At the well. The well in the Bible is a picture of the Bible. And you know what she's doing? She's giving out water to anybody who wants a drink. It's a picture of your ministering. I know some of you think you find a Christian spouse in the right spouse for church. Hey, most churches are Christian meat markets. That's all they are. They have a little group things over there. It's almost like, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it, 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 there's nothing concerned about anything spiritual. It's a, it's a parade and show. Just walk down and, and, and in there and, and look around and don't care, about the, don't care about the preaching, don't care about the singing. I'm looking for the most beautiful woman in here and making her day. Amen. You don't find... <laughs> yeah, well, you better pray about it, buddy. <laughs> Just kidding. But you know what? You don't find a right spouse in church. You see, that's another thing we get screwed up on, doesn't it? You don't find him in church. You know where you find him? You find him at the well. Find him at the well. You find somebody who ministers at the well with the washing of the water with the word, and you find him in ministry, you got a lot better chance that they're going to minister to you after you get married because they're ministering now. Now, you know, the beauty about this as far as me personally and what I, what I got here. As I can't, I tried to count them up this morning and I, I was, I, I couldn't think right. But anyway, which is my problem most of the time. The beauty about this, I have so many of you young couples. You know, you're in your late, late teens and 20s. And you want to get married and you're working toward that line. And some of you have already set dates. But the beautiful part of it is that we, you and us three are together, and we're building this thing together as you grow. Nobody is getting ahead of the other one. We don't have a situation where somebody over here, the guy is much more spiritual than the woman, or the woman is much more spiritual than the guy. We don't have a deal where you've got to put a rope behind them and tie it around their neck and then put it on your belt and pull them along as you walk for Jesus. We're not talking about that. You have the ability now <coughs> to grow up together and <coughs> learn these things together. I think that is the greatest 
greatest thing that you can do. And my week is filled with couples that come over that are, some of them aren't even, haven't even set a date yet. Some of them, the execution, I mean the execution, I mean the, the marriage date is already set. <clears throat> Somebody said, can you give me a verse for marriage? Yes, as a lamb led before the slaughter, he was dumb and opened out his mouth. <clears throat> <clears throat> But your spiritual relationship with God depends on your husband's. And I'm telling you, you want another principle? If, you, if, they, if, they, if they won't minister to you before they get married, they're not going to minister to you after they're married. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 is a great principle. It says, if a man can't take care of his own house, how's he going to take care of the house of God? See, they're connected. They're connected. They're connected. You know what the number one issue is in marriage today? I'm going to show you how this thing works. You know what the number one issue in marriage is today? It's communication. Couples don't know how to communicate. I don't know how many times in the last year I've had couples come in, not just from here, but many of you from here. And they they say, you know, I I listen to them. They have some struggles. They have some issues. And I tell them, I said, you know what? You guys can't. You have a problem communicating. I mean, you're sitting in the same room and you're not hearing what she's saying. You're not seeing what she's saying. And I said, I don't know what reason, but you're not communicating. And here's what I tell them. You know, you know how you learn to communicate in a marriage? And I don't know why. I, I don't understand why this is so hard. I, I just don't. But it is. Guys, it's the hardest thing you're ever going to have to do in your life. And it, 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 to me, it, it just blows my mind. I tell couples all the time. I say, I say, here's what you need to do. If you want to learn to communicate, learn how to pray together. Set a time three times a week. Set a time, every day would be great, but I don't know that you can do that. Set a time, uh, you know, twice a week. Set a time once a week. I don't care. I don't care how infrequent or frequent it is as long as you do it with consistency. Doing without consistency is ten times worse than doing it, not doing it at all. I'll tell you that right now. That's true of anything in your life. But I said, here's the deal. You kneel down here, you kneel down here. You pray out loud for God to make you a better spouse. You pray out loud for God to to make you a better wife. You pray out loud to God help you. Don't pray to God for his problems. I I feel like a dentist that just was drilling through your teeth and hit a nerve. I think I'll stay here a while. (laughs) Don't, Don't pray for God to fix him. Pray for God to fix you. And when the husband's kneeling next to you after you're done, let him pray. And, and don't ask him, and, and you don't pray for her to fix her. You ask God to fix you. And as you come to the place in your life when you have that time together, let me tell you something. If a couple can get on their knees and they can pray and they can take responsibility, you know what you ought to fight over in a marriage? Who's wrong? I know you do that already. I mean in a different way. (laughs) You know how you had a fight? You know what your fight had to be in a marriage? You do something dumb and you say, honey, I'm sorry. I was really stupid. I shouldn't have done that. She says, no, 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 no. I shouldn't have left it out. And you say, no, no, no. The fact that you left it out and it was dark and I tripped over it, it's not your fault. You know what? I should have had on my x-ray 
You know, I got those night vision goggles downstairs. Why don't I wear them when I get up in the middle of the night? You know, it's okay, you know. You know, she says, oh, no, 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 it was my fault because I left it out, you know, and I should have told you, honey, I just put chairs sideways all over the floor so you'd trip on them when you get up in the middle of the night. I'm so sorry. And you say, no, 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 honey, no, it was my fault. You know what? I should have, I should have been tiptoeing higher, you know, and I would have never stepped on one. It was my fault. She says, oh, no, sweetheart, it was my fault. And then that's what you, you had to fight over things like that. See, my point is this. Here's my point. When you can pray on that level of intimacy and pray for yourself and then pray for the other one in the right way and pray back and forth, that's the basis for communication. You can talk about anything then. Tell me, tell me, tell me what you can't talk about. Tell me what you won't be able to get through that you can't communicate with when you can, you can communicate on that intimate level. You know what? Most guys cannot do that. Girls usually don't have a problem. It's the guys. Now, I don't know why that is. Too much football, too much testosterone or whatever that stuff we got in our bodies is. Too much, too much ego, too much I'm the man, too much we don't do that. It's too much we don't cry, we don't do that, we don't do that. We don't, we're a man, we don't do that, see? You watch too many John Wayne movies. Well, I'll tell you what, we, you know, you, you, you're too caught up in it. You know what? For whatever reason, men can't do that. And then down the line, when it all busts up and breaks up, they say, I wonder what happened. Well, I'll tell you what happened. It goes all the way back. If it starts wrong, it usually ends wrong. Sixth disclaimer. Anytime you want to fix it, you can. You can. And I'll tell you what, ladies, if you have to constantly, if you know, if it, and here's what happens with guys. I know how it happens, and I'm just telling you. Here's what happens. You know that you start doing it for two or three days, maybe a week, and then you know four weeks down the line, you know, don't do it anymore. You know, you just you don't do it anymore. You just you know you're you're standing around saying as the gal, well, what happened? What happened? Is that the kind of spiritual leader you want? Do you always want to go up and knock on his forehead? Time to pray. Is that is that a spiritual leader? Do you always want to be reminding him of the principles? Do you always want to be bringing them along behind you? Now, let me just give you the bottom line here. You know why? You know why they husbands don't do that, don't follow through? You know why they forget? You know why they don't stay with it? Here it comes. Because they really don't want to do it. Do you ever notice the things that get done in our life that we really want to do? Now, a lot of you like to hunt deer. And this is, uh, this is not a slam against hunting or fishing. A lot of you like to hunt deer. A lot of you like to fish. A lot of you like to do whatever you like to do. Everybody has their thing. Some of you like to play golf. And that's fine. Everybody needs an outlet. Everybody needs outlet. You know, everybody needs something in life. But the bottom line is this. You know what? When we have things in our life that we really want to do that mean a lot to us, we never miss it. Could you see a guy who's waited all year to go deer hunting, and then that morning he gets up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? He said, boy, there's sure a lot of shooting going on this morning. Kept me, kept waking me up. Yeah, everybody was getting their deer. Where are they all at? No, you're out there. I probably, you can't sleep the night before. You probably just, all night long, you're just thinking, oh, you're looking, waking up every half hour. It's a time to get up yet. Don't want to be late. Oh, man, it's 4.30. I got to get up at 5. Oh, I can't go back to sleep. I got to stay up. You know, because you're so, because that's what you really want to do. Now, why can't you be like that with the Bible? Why can't you be, ladies, that's the kind of guy you want. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. You don't want somebody that you've got to always remind them to be the spiritual leader. Hi, honey, have a good day. Remind you, you're the spiritual leader. Is that what you want? Really, is that what you want? 
They're inconsistent before marriage, I guarantee you. If it ain't important to them, if it ain't the number one thing, if you got to, if they don't, if, they, if, if walking with God, the relationship with God and the intimate things of being a spiritual leader isn't the number one thing in life before they get married, please, 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 don't fool yourself into things. It will be afterwards. It will not. The key is the well. The well. Now I'll tell you something else. Another great principle in this thing here is Isaac did not go out looking for a wife. You notice that? He didn't go out looking for one. He stayed home fellowshipping with the Father. The Holy Spirit of God knew exactly where to go to get the exact spouse that he needed and he found her in the exact spot that you always find them at the well giving out water. I'm telling you, these things work. The key is the well. Prove all things. Now, that, now, as this church has grown over the last four or five years, this last year I saw the need to establish really two key areas in our church. You know, we've come along now and we're going, going great and God's you're seeing people saved and people are coming in and all of that stuff. And, you know, we've gotten to the point now where this last year I, I saw two areas that this church really needs to begin to develop. One of them is in the youth ministry, which we got up going very well. The other one was in the idea of the young marriage. Because, again, the key word here is proactive. The marriage issue will be the number one problem. This church needs to be proactive not only with kids and their parents, but also in building relationships with the ones that come in who want to get married. The lifeblood of this church and its future will not be us old folks. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm 58, uh, 50, I, I don't know how old I am. I'm getting pretty close to 60. <coughs> I think I'm going to be 59, June 14th, size 15 and a half, 33. This church has to be built on the young blood that's in it. Every young couple that comes in, every young single that comes in, I look at it and I think to myself, wow, there is the lifeblood of this church. That doesn't mean that we don't minister to the older folks. The older folks ought to be ministering to the younger folks. They ought to be the examples by which the younger folks look to and say, hey, this is what I want to be. But you know what? It doesn't always work that way. But wherever you're at, you can get in and get going. It's up to you. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter. But the lifeblood of this church or any church in its future will be the young couples and the young singles that in the next three or four years will start to get married and start to get to the place where they, they begin to build the relationships. Some of you probably see this now. I don't know. I, I kind of watch and, you know, I'm always looking for leadership. I look for any strain of leadership in somebody that I can develop. I look for, in everything that I do, I, I don't always tell you why I do what I do the way I do it because I've learned over the years that the best way to determine leadership is to give somebody a situation and not give them all the answers to it and then see how they figure it out because that's what a leader does. In our institute, we talk about a three little, three little part phrase which to me sums it all up. Look behind, look around, look ahead. That's what a leader does. A leader is never looking just where he's at or she's at. A leader never sees the situation as it appears. They always see the situation as it really is. Now that's what I'm looking for in people. I'm looking to put you in a scenario where you have to make some determining judgments about the scenario you're in. 
I want to see if you can look beyond the situation you have. I want to see if you can see the, what you got right here. And basically, I, I'm always looking. I, I'd, like to have a, I'd like to have a church filled with leaders. You say you wouldn't have anybody to follow. No, the true leader is a good follower, see? But developing leadership in people is the key. Because as this church grows, leadership has to grow. And when I look at, when I look at scenarios and I see put people in scenarios, I'm always I'm looking for any shred. I'm looking for just a minuscule part, a piece of somebody that, that when you, like a, like a dying fire, when you just wave the, wave the fan, you know, you see that little ember down there and it says, I'm a leader, I'm a leader. And then you bring that thing back to a forest fire. Four or five months ago, we had a meeting. And I told everybody that wanted to be a part of it, you know, that we were going to start a young marriage ministry. And like I said, I don't always say everything that, I, that I'm going to do. I like to throw things out there, and I like to watch how people respond to it. You know, and we wanted to start a, a thing where, you know, uh, it, it, you know, Danny and Bubba started a, you know, started a, a tonight, their class on marriage. And, you know, I looked at that, and I thought to myself, this is what I want to see. I want to see, because out of this, i got a couple of things we're going to accomplish. One, there's couples here that need to have that class that have never been through it. Two, out of this class, I want these guys to develop a set of lessons that can be all the way across the board to down the line, everybody else. And then thirdly, and probably most important, I want to take out of that group on Saturday night and build a cadre. I want to take men and women that go through that class that I can take and put into a ministry team that wherever we go, whatever God does with us, that they have the ability to take people and work with them and do everything that needs to be done in helping them build, uh, be proactive in building uh, their marriage. I don't want anybody to say, I I'm going to look the difference between the ones that say, man, I've already been through it, but I want to get it on the bottom floor because I want to learn how to deal with somebody else versus somebody who said, yeah, I've already been through it, you know. I, you know, it wasn't that good the first time. I'm sure it won't be that good the second time. You see, that's the difference. That's the difference. I'm looking for people who are looking farther down the line. They want to be part of it. They want to get it on the ground level. They want to say, yes, I want to take this. I want to learn it because that's what I want to do in people's life. I'll give you an example. Last, uh, last Sunday night we had uh, the, the, the singles hosted a sing-along. And, and it was a great time. And I usually don't go to those things simply because I like to stay out of it. Uh, when guys, when I put a guy in charge, whoever it may be, whatever he's in, I like him to run it. I don't like the idea that sometimes I'm there. If he says something, people look over their shoulder to see if I approve or not. And, and it doesn't matter whether I do or don't. When you're in command, you command. I, I you know, I, 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 I follow your lead. And uh, if, I, if I had enough confidence to put you in charge, then I have enough confidence that you can handle it without me putting my face in it. So I usually don't show up because, you know, I just like to stay in the background and let the leadership develop itself. <clears throat> but I went that night because I'm looking, I was looking for something. Now, I don't know if you know this, but, <coughs> I mean, it was a great time. But did you know, did anybody notice, did anybody see what I saw? Did anybody see what I saw there? You know, like I said, sometimes I just put out an idea and don't give you all the story because I'm looking to see how things go. But I'll tell you what, I saw three or four groups of singles that came to that thing that probably two or three or four years down the line are going to get married. I saw people that were, were, that were single that at some point are going to be in a relationship if they're not already. 
And what I saw there was through just a little thing like that, I saw the basis being built that you folks were reaching out because those same people that right now are not married, but maybe they're dating or they got a girlfriend or their boyfriend or they really want one and down the line are going to be married. We don't want to wait till they get into a relationship before we have any input in their lives. You were building the basis right there. You were building the foundation in their life right there by setting the example of what good, godly things are supposed to go like that a little bit farther down the line, when they get into a relationship, they'll just walk right into the process of learning how to build a marriage because the pre-stuff was done right now. Looking around, looking behind, looking ahead. Not just looking at it for what it appears to be. Looking at it for what it can be, what it should be. Leadership. Building relationships. That's what ministry is. It's, not, it's the ability not just to see a singles group or a, or, a, or a married class group. It's the ability to look beyond that and look ahead and see the people down the road that you're going to be ministering to. I don't care if they're married for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, or 50 years. I want, I want to develop a team of leaders in this church that will be able to deal with marital problems as wherever they come in, however old they are, that you'll be able to take them and mold them and make it happen in their life. And the key is at the well. I love the verse. He says down there in verse 13. Behold, I stand here by the, water, by the, uh, by the well of water. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to watch the ladies come in and come out to draw the water. And I'll know the right one when she shows up. And boy, when old Rebecca came down there and, and, and picked up that thing and brought that water, he says, that's her. That's her. That's her. Now, this is why, ladies and gentlemen, and most of you don't even understand the biblical definition of an engagement. You find kids getting married today, they get no engagement, little engagement. And just like they don't understand the Bible definition of marriage, just like they don't understand the Bible definition of finding a spouse and a relationship or the judgment seat of Christ, they don't understand the, the Bible definition of an engagement. Can anybody stand here and tell me why that in the Bible in the Old Testament, when a husband and wife or a spouse are not married yet? Can anybody tell me why before, while they're still engaged, the Bible already calls them husband and wife, even though they haven't been married or not literally, legally husband and wives yet in the Old Testament sense? Well, the answer to that is the importance of a biblical engagement. Your relationship, any relationship that you're going to bait your judgment seat of Christ on is going to be founded on three things. It's going to be founded on lordship. That's your own personal relationship with Christ and your own spiritual growth. That lordship is going to lead to uh, when you and your wife both have the lordship and you both have your personal walk with God, your growth process is, is kicking in, you're growing, you're in ministry, you're moving toward the well, you're, you're getting to the point where you're going, to, you're, it, it, you're going to get to that point. Once you get your lordship together, the lordship then uh, brings into the next aspect, and that'll be your relationship. In other words, there, any relationship you have will only be based on your lordship. And that lordship will only be based on how far you're willing to go. And the question that both of you ought to be asking yourself through the relationship, and this is where the Bible says to prove all things, through the engagement relationship. The engagement relationship, ladies and gentlemen, is a pre-described period of time by which you are proving all things without actually getting into the contract of it. 
Now, I think very frankly, and this is just me, and this is not a biblical principle, but this is just me here. You can take this for what it's worth. I think that if, you, if you're actively looking for somebody to get in a, in a relationship with and it's getting serious to the point of marriage or they want to get married, I think you ought to write out a contract, a biblical spiritual contract. I learned one of the greatest things I've ever done in ministry is to document things. I used to think that you could, people understood what you were saying when you had an agreement and then six months down the road suddenly it all changed. You still remember it, but it didn't go the way it was supposed to go. So I've learned over the years that what you want to do is you want to document. You want to document. You want to have something in writing so if you have to have an issue, you can come back and say, okay, well, here's what we said. Now, I think that's perfectly legitimate if you're going to get in a relationship with somebody and you're a young lady and you want some things that you, that you don't screw up your judgment seat of Christ or you're a guy and you want some things that you don't want to mess it up. And you sit down and you say, okay, here's what I'm expecting from you. This is what the Bible says. And the guy says, okay, here's what I'm expecting for you. Write that thing up. About a couple of years ago now, it's been, what, three years, we put in our first deacons. I followed the same program. I took all of them in a little room back in the old building. We sat down, followed the same program. I took all of them in a little room back in the old building. We sat down and we talked about some things and I laid some things out for them and I, I showed them, uh, I showed them uh, what I expected. Uh, I, I didn't bring them in and say, oh, you're all, uh, you're all deacons. I said, we've been through this thing now for two or three years. I said, you know what? You know me, I know you uh, up to this point. I said, I'm offering this to you based on our past uh, performance together because I think that you have, up to this point, you have laid yourself out as a leader in this church. And I said, we've come to the place now where we need to put our first deacons in. But remember what I did? I had a whole list of things I went down. I told you that your accountability was going to be higher than somebody else. I laid down a parameter for you being a deacon. I laid down the parameter to be an example of being a deacon. And I walked through that thing, and then you know what I did at the end? Oh, I remember now. I gave all you your deacon certificates. No, I didn't. I said, you take it and think about it for a week. I said, it'll be no reflection on you whether you do it or you don't. I said, if you don't come back to me and you say, I'm not up to this, I'm not ready to do this, I'll say to you, God bless you. I appreciate your honesty. You're a good man. We'll, we'll look at it. If you ever feel you're ready to do it, you let me know because you're a good man in my eyes, and praise the Lord, I appreciate your honesty. You know what else I did? I had them tape it. And I gave them each a CD of that meeting. You know why I did that? Because I know human nature. I know down the line someplace, if I'd have had an issue with somebody or a problem with somebody, it would have been one of those he shed, she shed things, you know. And I, I, I wanted to keep that meeting as clean and close as, and, and, and not waste a lot of time for them and for me. So I gave everybody a CD. And I told them, I said, you need to listen to this at least once a month. I said, because the bottom line is this, if there's ever an issue, we have a problem, I, I'm not going to come to you and say, hey, uh, what's, what, what, what's your problem? What's the deal? I'm just going to simply look at you and say, what part of this did you not understand? What part of this did you not escape you? What part of this did you not figure out at the time we were there that when in a week from point A to point B, when you had the chance to get out of it, what point? In here, did you not get? See, you know what that does? That eliminates it. Documentation is the key. I'd do it. I'd do it. I mean, you're entering into a marriage contract, aren't you? Well, enter into an enter into a, um, engagement contract. But you know what? You have lordship, which leads to your fellowship. 
or excuse me, it leads to your relationship. And then when you have the lordship down and a relationship down, that leads to where your real your fellowship is. That thing's true in your own personal relationship with Christ. It's also true in your marriage. You have got to have those things operating in your life. And you don't get those things by coming to church. You get those things by hanging out at the well. At the well. And these three areas are to be worked out during the, during the engagement. You ought to be asking yourself, if you're the woman in this, you ought to be asking yourself through this time as you're a man in this, being honest with yourself. See, the principles take the emotions out. You ought to simply come to the point and you simply ought to say, do I really want to be in this relationship? Is this thing going that's going to protect me at the judgment seat of Christ? Do I have a reason to stay in this? I mean, in a perfect biblical perspective, up against the judgment seat of Christ, if I continue in this, do I really want to be the rest of my life, be the spiritual leader? Do I really want a one that always brings up praying, always brings up this? Do I really want to be the one that always has to lead the thing and every way it's done? If that's, do you really want to do that in your life? Those are the things. That's what the engagement is for. So many times the engagement is never even thought of. You don't even understand how it works in the Bible. You don't even understand how it lays itself out. Therefore, you're such a big hurry because you want to get married, you just forsake the whole thing. And then five, six years down the line, you'll wonder why. It, it's simple. It's simple. When it starts wrong, it usually ends wrong. It's like trying to fix the washing machine with a handbook from the cordless phone. It just doesn't work. And there lies the problems that we have. Now, I say that and I say this. No matter where you're at in your relationship, no matter where you're at, whether you're married, not married, whatever the case may be, you can always fix the thing that needs to be fixed. Next week, we're going to enter into the second greatest chapter in the Bible on marriage relationship, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to talk about every scenario you're going to ever possibly find yourself in. Some of you have never been married. And you're faced with marrying somebody who has been married. Some of you have never been married and the person you're marrying has never been married. Some of you are getting married with somebody that has already been married and the person you marry has already been married. You find every scenario in the world, every scenario in the world found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you get saved and you make mistakes in life, you get those mistakes right, brother, and you can do whatever want God wants you to do, and you can have everything that God ever had for you, and you can, you can redeem, even redeem the time, the Bible says. But it all comes down to principles. And in every one of those scenarios, because here's what you deal with. Here's what you deal with. Some of you find yourself in a relationship, and here's the big problem. You're going you're gonna to get it. You, you, you've never been married before, or maybe you have. And the person you're going to marry, he's been married before, or she's been married before, or maybe they haven't. <clears throat> Here's the big problem in those kind of scenarios. There's nothing wrong with it. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about divorce, remarriage. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about all the aspects of it. But here's the problem. Somebody goes into that, and they, they think they're going into it like nobody's ever been married before. It's just like getting started all over again. It, no, it's not. No, it's not. You can get married. There's nothing wrong with that if you've done what the Bible says you need to do. But brother, 
you're entering into a whole other scenario that Paul says, and such, and such, and such will have trouble in the flesh. It brings a whole different scenario. Does it mean it's unworkable? Absolutely not. Does it mean it can't work? Absolutely not. Many cases they do work. Many cases uh, that, that, that it, 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 it adds to that person. It helps that person when they do it by the biblical principles. I'm going to bring you through next week and I'm going to show you every conceivable scenario. I'm going to show you what the difference is between a Bible separation and a divorce. Who even understands that the Bible has a separation for people? I'm going to talk to you about what God calls marriage. There's some of God's people here this morning. Maybe not in here. But there's some of God's people out there in the world today that are married by the state but have been unmarried by God for a long time. And then there's people out there that have never been married by the state and are married in God's sight a long time ago. Understanding the difference between what God looks at as marriage and what God looks at as divorce. Understanding uh, getting all of the, getting too married. Understanding that what you do when you find yourself in an abusive situation. Do you just, are you stuck there? Are you stuck in a situation where your husband is abusive and maybe brings drugs and alcohol and the children involved? What do you do? Is this Romans 8, 28 now? Does that apply here? Do you have any recourse at all? Can you do anything at all? How about if you're married to a deadbeat husband? How about if you're married to a husband and it's just everything he does, everything, you're left completely with everything in, in your own scenario. I mean, everything is out of balance. Everything is, is messed up. Are you just stuck with that? What are the principles in cases like that? How about this one? I hear this more any other time in any other situation in marriage because people get married from other relationships and they have children from the other relationships. Sometimes the husband will be married and he's got a child. The mother's never been married and she has no children and they get married and now there's a child involved. Sometimes they both have kids from previous relationships and they come into the marriage. The number one problem that parents talk to me about is how do we get along in that scenario? How do I discipline a child that is not my biological child? How do I deal in a situation when we give him the Bible when the other spouse on the other end takes it from him? How do I deal with a situation when I got trying to give him Bible verses and his father or his mother over here giving him a marijuana cigarette? How do I deal in that scenario? Am I just stuck? Do I just say, oh God help me? Do I just say, well that's just the way it is? What are the principles involved in dealing in those kind of relationships? Well, the Bible covers them. And you ought to know in every given scenario you're faced with, you ought to understand and know how to deal with it, how to biblically lay it out, what the principle is involved, that when you find yourself in that scenario, and truth of the matter is, if you never find yourself in that scenario, you're going to bump shoulders with people at work, people in your neighborhood, people that, you're, that God wants to put in your path that you'll be able to help them get through what they're going through. But it all starts with coming back into your own principles. Now, I'm going to end by saying this. I said a lot of things today, and you may find yourself caught up in one of these scenarios. I don't know. But I'm telling you this, I don't care how bad you've screwed it up in past. I don't care how bad, what a mess you've made out of your life, out of your marriage, whatever the case may be. This was not a browbeating session this morning to make you feel bad about your failures in life. Anytime you want to list your failures next to my failures, we'll have a great time talking about it, get a couple beers and probably get drunk. But the bottom line is this. 
God will take you wherever you're at. You're never done with God. God is never done with you. God wants to take you no matter where you're at. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what your scenario is. I don't care. There's always time to start till you breathe your last breath. There's always time to start doing what's right and putting your life where God wants it to be. And nobody, I mean absolutely nobody, not around here anyhow, will ever point their finger at you and say, well, who do you think you are? Look what you did. I guarantee you, nobody around here will. Because the bottom line is this, everybody gets a chance with God no matter how we screw it up. When you're serious with God, God gets serious with you. And he'll take you from that point and he'll build your life. There is no reason, and my goal, I've told you this, my goal, my goal is that everybody who is a member of this church, my goal in time for you is that you are all actively involved in dealing with people and their lives and accomplishing what God's plan is for your life. Now, will that happen? Absolutely not. But that does not stop me from wanting it for you. That does not stop me from putting the things in play that give you the tools that you need. Because I know this, enough of you will. Enough of you will that will make the difference. That's why God brought you here. That's why God put you in this church. That's why God had you find your way here. Because God is going to take you, going to mold you, and going to make you. You're going to have to change the things on your end, and then God will take care of it on the other end. And that's how you become valuable to God in ministry. But it has to be done by the principles. You have to start putting those things into your life. And as the Bible says, if you're contemplating a relationship with somebody, and you're contemplating getting married, or you're in a relationship, the bottom line is simply this. Prove all things. Don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. They'll tell you for the next 35 years, well, I'm going to do it, 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 I'm going to do it. And you know what? They'll never wind up doing it because we do what we really want to do. And that is, a, that is a terrible, terrible concept to say about anything or anybody is the fact is we think more about fishing. We think more about hunting. We think more about this. We think more about that. We think more about sports than we do. We'll give that more time, more diligence, more time than we will building our own relationship with God. But people do what they really want to do. I had 35, 40 years of ministry. I never met anybody, male or female, that ever got duped out of being the man or the woman God wanted them to be. That's all a conscious choice they make. They look at life, they look at the ministry, they look at this, they look at that, and they'll say, I'll take this because it's more fun. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the great concepts on relationships. We ask you, Father, <coughs> to help these folks this morning <coughs> look deep inside themselves that no matter what relationship they find themselves in, Father, <coughs> help them to know that <coughs> the reality is that the Word of God changes our life. I have never met a Christian <coughs> that was right with God, plugged in with God, doing what God wanted them to do, that stayed in the same spiritual state they were in. 